So Joe did a great job last week talking about these blessings that we have in union with Christ. That we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Our past has been blessed. Our present is blessed. Our future is blessed because of what Christ has done. And so Paul, when he explains, when he goes on about these blessings in verses 3 to 14, in the original language, verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence. You think I gab on, Paul, really? One long sentence he does to talk about the blessings we have in Christ. And a similar thing happens here in verses 15 to 23. In the original language, it's one long sentence. And that tells us something. It tells us that when Paul is expressing these things, probably saying these things to someone who's writing it out so it could be sent out to other people, when he's saying these things, he's excited. Like, like all these ideas are being connected together. And it's important for us to see this, that the Bible is not just kind of some dry ideas or philosophical statements. It's, it's written by men filled with the Holy Spirit, inspired by God Himself to write down the things that God wants written down. And those things aren't written down again in some strange, esoteric way or just some dry, cerebral way. But these are, are, are people who are receiving what God has to say and are excited about what God has to say. And I love, I love the fact that Paul, after expressing these blessings we have uh, in God, in Christ, he then goes to actually pray for the Ephesians. He, he says that I'm praying for you. And, and he, we get an idea that these are the things that he's praying for them. And, and this is important because I think sometimes we have this mindset that there's, a, that there's some sort of competition between what God does and what we do. We talked a little bit last week about the, the idea of God's sovereignty, the fact that God chooses. We talked about election and how people can get kind of bent and confused with election. But we talked about this, this reality that, that it doesn't take away the fact that we have a choice to make. That God does what he's going to do and that doesn't change the fact that we have a responsibility to do what he's called us to do. And what's really amazing is that God, because he's sovereign, because God is in control, that God can actually use the choices we make to fulfill his will. To do the very things that he's promised to do. God can fulfill those things in spite of us. In spite of the fact that we don't always do what we're supposed to do. But God also will do, the, do what he wants to do by using the things that he commands us to do. And I think this works especially when it comes to prayer. Sometimes we think, okay, well if God's in control, if God knows anything, why do I have to pray? You ever feel that way? Have you ever been praying and just said, well God... God, you know what's wrong. Just fix it. In fact, just fix everything. Amen. That seems sufficient enough. He's God. But God calls us into this relationship that we express through prayer. God calls us into this relationship that we, that we seek him corporately in prayer. Because in prayer, God is doing things to work out his will. God's working as we are praying. And so really that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to see in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, the things that he's praying for them, we're going to see three aspects of prayer that I hope, my prayer is, that will affect us in how we pray for ourselves and for one another. So when we pick it up in verse 15, Paul says that therefore after I heard of your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints, he does not give, cease to give thanks. And so really the first thing we want to, to notice about Paul's prayer is the first aspect of prayer that we learn is that thanking God, that we should be thanking God for the work that he's already done. 
So we're, we're going to see when we get to the second half of the letter of, of Ephesians, all the things that Paul's going to call these people to do, though, the way we are to respond to, to God and who he is, the responsibilities we have as Jesus followers. But before he gets into that, he's spending the first three chapters to talk about what it, how we become Jesus followers, what God's done to make us Jesus followers, what God's done to adopt us into his family. And it's interesting because these, these people that were in Ephesians, that were in Ephesus, that Paul was writing to, these people were in process. They weren't perfected yet. They were still growing in their relationship with God. They were still learning to be Jesus followers. They were still learning to do that as individuals. They were still learning to do that as churches. And, and Paul, though, though they're in process, he didn't just go, gosh, you're not good enough, and start correcting them. Paul says, you know what, when I think about you, I just give thanks to God. I thank God for your faith, and I thank God for your love. Now, I, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't just talk about faith and love, but he says specifically what he heard of was their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he heard of their love for all the saints. That is, as we saw a couple weeks ago, that is all those who believe in Jesus, all those that are in their midst. So what their reputation was were those who really trusted Jesus. They believed in the Jesus that Paul preached. And because they trusted Jesus, because they believed they were adopted into God's family because of Jesus, they loved each other as family. They were committed to each other in this. And this is important. Because the direction of our faith and the direction of our love says a lot about where that faith and love comes from. See, a lot of people would say they have faith. A lot of people who aren't Christians, they do. They have faith in something or in someone. Some people have faith in another religion. Some people have faith in humanity or human potential. People have faith in all kinds of things. And that faith, what their faith is in, says something about where that faith actually comes from. Same with love. People love things. Obviously, people who aren't Christians love, don't they? People who aren't Christians, they can love their families. They can love their jobs. They can love their neighbor. To a degree, isn't that true? But what their, their commitment of, or who they're actually loving in the same way God loves, making a commitment to, that again says something about the source. Who do they commit to? Under what, under what circumstances do they commit themselves to love those things or those people? Paul is saying that he, what he's thankful for is that their faith here was faith in Jesus. We're going to see in a couple of weeks where Paul talks about the faith that we have in Jesus. Even that faith is a gift from God. It's something that God produced in us as we heard his word. It's, it's faith in Jesus. It's, it's a gift from God. God's given us the ability to believe. If you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you say, I'm a Jesus follower. Do you know why that's the case? Yeah, you made a choice. Absolutely, you made a choice. But you know why you made that choice? Because God drew you to himself. God, by his spirit, drew you to Jesus. God, by his spirit, showed you you needed Jesus, showed you you could trust Jesus, and called you to believe in Jesus. And that's when you made the choice. If he didn't do that, we would never believe. And this is what Paul's wanting these guys to, to say. This is what he's thankful for. Paul's thanking God, not the Ephesians. He's not going, I'm praising you because you have such great faith and such great love. No, he said, I'm thanking God because this faith doesn't come from you. It comes from God. And I'm thanking God because this love doesn't come from you. It comes from God. He's thanking God for what he sees happening in their life. Now, 
I think this is important for us to think about, especially when we talk about praying for each other. Have you ever been in a church situation where you just didn't get on with somebody, didn't really like them very well? I know you probably never have that, but you know, you know, you guys are all perfect, but you know, I have. You know what it's like, you know, especially the, the more the church grows, the more potential there is for annoyance. Can't stand the way that person is. I don't like the way that person worships. I don't like the way that person sings. I don't like the way that person serves. I don't like the way that person looks, whatever the case might be. We have these thoughts that we try not to, to admit to. We come to church and we smile. And we say, praise God, everything's fine. But inside, we feel this tension. Do you know one of the ways to overcome that? Well, there, there's a bit of repentance that needs to be done. But also, what, the way we overcome that is we give thanks for people. Sometimes what we'll do is we think, oh, I, should, I should pray for them. And so we start praying for all their faults. Oh, if they would just worship the way they're supposed to worship. If they would just serve the way they're supposed to serve. We start praying for all their faults. But you know, maybe a better way to start? Give thanks to God for them. Oh, but John, I'm not even sure if some of these people are actually Christians. I don't know. Well, are they at church? Thank God they're at church. Are they willing to listen? Thank God they're willing to listen. Are they willing to be a friend to you? Thank God they're willing to be a friend to you. Give thanks for them. I wonder how we might grow in relationship if we actually took the time to give thanks for each other. I wonder how that might improve our prayer life. I wonder how might that build our faith. It's interesting because this whole idea of faith and love going together is something we see all throughout Scripture. But Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. He says, For when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, there is no benefit from being circumcised or being uncircumcised. In other words, whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish, it doesn't make a difference. He says, what is important is faith expressing itself in love. What's important, Paul says, is that we trust Jesus, that what he's done is enough to make us part of God's family, and that shows itself in that we love God's family. And one of the ways we love God's family is to thank God for God's family. I'm always a little bit suspicious when people say things to me like, you know, I really like Jesus, I'm just not too crazy about Christians. I, I get what they mean, I do I get what they mean. I mean, I think sometimes we have high expectations, and I don't think that's wrong. I think we should have high expectations on one another in the sense that we should want to see people who say they're Christians to actually act like Christians. We should want that. But it's funny because sometimes what that really means is, what that really means is, I love Jesus, but they don't. That's what that means. When God says, listen, the scripture says in 1 John, it's not on the screen, but just listen. It says in 1 John that if we say we love God, but we hate the brethren, and hate doesn't mean I can't stand you. Hate even just means I don't want anything to do with you. That we're liars. See, faith in Jesus shows itself in love for his people. And Paul's given thanks to God for the Ephesians because that's what was there. They believed in Jesus and that was evidenced by the fact that they loved his people. Now, it's interesting because this whole idea of thanksgiving as well is, is, is what separates, really distinguishes Believers from unbelievers. Paul says, I don't cease to give thanks to you, making mention of your prayers. And giving thanks, man, this is what distinguishes between do you really believe or do you not believe? Listen to this. This is what Paul wrote to the Roman, the church in Rome. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 21. I'm reading from the NLT. New Living Translation. I like the way it, it paraphrases this. It says, Yes, unbelieving humanity, or man is what it literally says, but unbelieving humanity is the context. Yes, unbelieving humanity knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. What was the result? What's the result when human humanity refuses to worship the God who's given them every good gift? Refuses to thank God who's given them every good gift? Here's the result. It says, And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused. See, as believers, we don't just begin to see the good in our life. We know where the good comes from. Our hearts say, God, everything that's good in my life comes from you. And even all the bad stuff, I can thank you for even the bad stuff because you're going to turn the bad stuff into good. You're going to work it together for good. Maybe not my good right away, but somebody's good. Some believer's good. Someone's going to benefit from even this bad stuff in my life. So I can give you thanks. This is why the Bible tells us, listen, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're commanded. These are commands. It says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What would happen to our prayer lives if, if the first priority was just to thank God for everything? I'll tell you, this is, this is where I find uh, just great practical help when my prayer life grows stale. I know none of your prayer lives ever grow stale, but mine does sometimes. My prayer life grows stale sometimes. You know what really seems to get me out of that? Taking time just to thank God. Thank you, God, that even though I'm growing, my, I don't feel much right now, I can know by your word that you hear me. Thank you, God, that even if I, my faith is weak, you are still faithful. Thank you, God, that, that, that the whole reason I would even, even come to, to pray to you in the first place is because you began this good work in me. Thank you, God, for what you do. Every good gift is from you. Every perfect gift is from you. Thanking God. Let's not overlook these things when we come into them in scriptures. Thanking God, yeah, that's a nice idea. No, it's a command, and it liberates our prayer lives. I want you to think about this. When, we, when you pray for somebody, and I, I hope you do pray for other people. I hope you don't just pray for yourself. But when you pray for somebody, take the time to thank the Lord for them. Even if you're just so with them. Thank you, God, that you're telling me to pray for them because you want to do good work in them. And thank you, God, that as annoying as they are to me, I know I must be much more to you and you forgive me time and time again. You're patient with me time and time again. So he thanks the Lord. He thanks his, his Father God for the Ephesians because he sees the Father working in them already. But he also prays this. Notice, he's going to ask God for his work of revelation in their, in their lives. He wants God to continue this work of revelation. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 17. He says... Making mention of your prayers, in my prayers, he says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, notice, in the knowledge of him. Now, in most of our versions, the word spirit is a lowercase s. 
The truth is, though, this could be just as, as legitimately an uppercase S. In other words, it could be talking about our human spirit, lowercase s, the inner man. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it also could be talking about the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that gives wisdom and knowledge. Either way, we know it's the Holy Spirit who's going to work in our spirit. But it's really important that we notice it says, that, that phrase at the end of verse 18 that says, over 17, I'm sorry, that says, in the knowledge of him. Because what Paul's praying for is he's asking God to do this work where the Holy Spirit is transforming us through and for relationship. That's what he's doing. How do we change? How do, how do we begin to, to understand what, who God is and what he wants? How do we know that? Through relationship. God wants relationship. I don't know if you had parents who, who basically uh, didn't seem to let you get close to them until you did everything you were supposed to do. And so if that is the case, you might feel like relationship is based on what you do. But actually, biblically, relationship is based on who you are. What family you're born into. And if you're born again into the family of God, if you've put your faith into Jesus and you have that new life, you're born again, it's in being in that family. It's who you are in Christ that determines the relationship. And what God does, listen, is God is transforming you through that relationship. God changes you on the inside. In fact, let's talk about what he means by wisdom. Wisdom is, listen, wisdom literally is living life skillfully. That's what's meant in the scripture by wisdom. It's learning to live life skillfully. Read the book of Proverbs. It's all about this kind of wisdom. How do you live life skillfully? Revelation is about understanding life eternally. So what you have here is Paul saying there's a, he's praying for this transforming work of the Holy Spirit where our life and our thoughts line up. That both how we live and how we think lines up as the Holy Spirit changes us. Again, this is a theme that Paul talks about a lot. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Again, I'm reading from the NLT. Paul writes this. He says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies, that's an idea of your whole life, to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. But notice, let God transform you into a new person. Notice, by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Do you see that combination? The changing the way we think, changing our perspective, changing our understanding to what end? That our life would change. That we begin to learn to live life skillfully, the way God wants us to live life. So Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would do this transforming work for relationship and through relationship. That as we live life skillfully, as we are change our thinking, we'd realize I've been created to have a relationship with God. That's why I exist. That's the purpose of life. Your purpose in life is not to have a fulfilling career. 
as, a, as much of a blessing as that is from God. Your purpose in life is not to have a beautiful family. As much as that's a blessing from God. Your purpose in life is not to be comfortable, financially comfortable. As much as that can be a blessing of God. Your purpose in life is not just to have good health. As much as that can be a blessing of God. You know what your purpose is? You know why you exist? You exist to know God. He made you so you can have a relationship with him. So when Paul prays for the Ephesians and when we pray for each other, Holy Spirit, would you transform us? Would you change us? We're trusting that God's going to change us through this relationship and to deepen that relationship. Now he goes on to say in the first part of verse 18 of Ephesians 1, he says, he prays that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. Now, there's a smiley face going to come on the screen. And just kind of imagine this is you and you have a very odd shaped head, okay? So there's smiley faces on the screen, okay? And, and when he talks about, he uses this, this, this phrase, at least in the New King James, it says, the eyes of your understanding. If you have the NIV, the New International Version, it says the eyes of your heart. So which is this? Is it your understanding or is it your heart? Well, there's this verse that we're going to read later on in Ephesians chapter 4 months down the road when we get to Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Okay, wait a second. Is it our spirit? Is it our mind? Is it our intellect? Is it our heart? Which is it? It's all those things. You see, a lot of these terms are interchangeable in the scriptures. Now, let me be clear about this, okay? What Paul is praying right now is he's praying that the Holy Spirit would engage our intellect. So, so I want you to understand something, okay? You can be thinking about Christian things. You can be thinking about what the scripture means by this thing or that thing. You can have an intellectual understanding or an assent to certain truths that the Bible teaches. And it's not necessarily you being transformed by the Holy Spirit. When Paul's praying for something, he's not just praying, I wish you were smarter, okay? Or I wish you had a better education. Paul's praying for something supernatural to happen to them. He's praying that the Holy Spirit would, would engage their intellect. Now, here's the thing. Even though you can engage your intellect or you can be thinking about Christian things and still not be transformed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will not transform you without engaging your intellect. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the thing. So for some of you guys, this is the part you love. Oh, challenge my thinking. Give me to think. I like when my, my wheels are turning. I like coming to servants and getting my, my wheels to turn to think about things intellectually. That's great. That's, I'm glad you like that bit, okay? But listen, this is more than an intellectual exercise. This has to be us saying, God, would you enlighten the eyes of our understanding? Because we don't just need new information. We need to become new people. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is what Paul's praying for. Now, if you look at the last part of verse 18 in Paul's prayer, notice what he continues to pray. He says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, he says that you would know what is the hope, that is the expectation of good, the hope of his calling. That is God's invitation to you. The hope is his callings, his calling, notice, and what are the riches of the glory, something really great here, of his inheritance in the saints. Now, now hold on, follow me on this. Now, engage your intellect, come on. When, when Paul here is saying about, when he's talking about his calling, God's calling or God's invitation, what has God invited you to? 
What has God invited you to? God has invited you into an eternal relationship. That's what he's done through Christ. In sending Christ, Christ himself is this, this general, available to anyone, invitation to come have a relationship with God. Come know the God who's made you. Come know the God who's redeemed you. There's an invitation there. But also, when the Holy Spirit did that work to show us that we do need a Savior and that we can trust Jesus to be that Savior, when God did that work, that was God's Spirit effectually calling us, specifically calling us to believe in Him, to trust Him. And when you respond to that calling, you became what the Bible refers to as the called. God called you, you responded. You're the called. You've responded to this invitation. You belong to Him. Now listen. When he talks about this invitation, I want you to understand, he's invited us to, as, as, as Joe talked about last week, he's invited us to this eternal inheritance that we are going to live forever with God. The world's going to be the way it was meant to be. It's the world that we all want. We're longing for that when Jesus comes back. We've been invited into that inheritance. We get, by Christ's uh, merits, by Christ's work, we get to inherit Christ's blessing. That's our inheritance, Okay? But notice what Paul's writing here too, what Paul's praying. He's saying, listen, that you would know not the blessing of your inheritance, but his inheritance. Think about this for a second. We know what we get out of the deal. <laughs> what does God get out of the deal? Now, now this blows me away. What blows me away is what Paul's praying, he's saying, I'm praying for you Ephesians that you would understand the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints. In other words, how much God values what he's inheriting. What is God inheriting? You. <laughs> you. God says, I can't wait to spend eternity with you. Do you believe that? Can you see why Paul would be praying for the Ephesians to have their minds blown about that by being excited about, wow, God really wants me? Again, I, I know probably none of you feel this, but sometimes I wonder, does God actually want me? Maybe God doesn't want me. I wouldn't blame him if he didn't want me. Is God actually wanting to save me? And if he is saving me, is he doing it reluctantly? All right, I'll save you, you idiot. You're such a bonehead. I gotta save, someone's gotta save you. I'll do it. I, I project those things onto God. And you know what that's called? Idolatry. Blasphemy. <laughs> because they're wrong views about God. You know what the scripture actually says? It pleases the Lord to save me. Little old me. It pleases the Lord that I'm gonna spend eternity with him. Why? Because he's doing something in me. He's changing me and making me Something glorious. He's doing the same for you if you believe. He's doing the same for you. Paul wants these guys to, to understand this, to begin to realize these great riches that are theirs in Christ, that God actually can make us into something that he would long for. How can God who has everything, God who needs nothing or anyone, ever want us? Because he's making us into his own image. He's redeeming that image that's been broken. He's making us into something desirable through Christ. Guys, this is what we need to be praying for each other. And in fact, I want to encourage you, if you are serving on a ministry team here, and I almost forgot to say, 
there's still we're still doing signups for ministry teams and for football uh, football group and other things on that back table. So feel free to sign up for those things still. But if you're serving on a ministry team, usually you have to be here anywhere between, say, 9.30 and 10 o'clock to get ready on the week that you're serving. Can, can I ask you to, to pray about something besides committing to one of those teams? If you are able to be here every week between 9.30 and 10, say 9.45, you know what you can do? You can go into this back room and you can pray for this. God, would you grant us revelation? Would you help us to see who you are? Would you transform us as we hear your word, as we speak your word to one another? Would you do this transformative work? I hope we have a bigger vision, a a bigger desire from coming to church than just hopefully hearing a a good sermon, singing some good songs, having some good coffee. I hope we expect greater things than that because God wants to do greater things than that. God actually wants to supernaturally open our eyes so we can see who he is, what he's done, who we are in Christ, what he's doing for us. He wants to do something that radical. That's why we pray on a Sunday morning. It's also something here, uh, really, just really telling us about our future. It's interesting because he, he says in the last part of verse 18, um, he talks about uh, the, his inheritance, of course, and, and, and that phrase, too, would have probably, in the Jewish mind, the Jewish people who would have read this, probably would have thought of Psalm chapter 2. In, in Psalm chapter 2, this is what David wrote about the future Messiah. This is God speaking to the future Messiah, where God would say, Ask of me, and I will give you, the Messiah, the nations for your inheritance. In spite of what we've heard in the news this week, God loves every tongue, tribe, and nation and values them equally. They're equal image bearers of God. And what's glorious about heaven is when we get to heaven, we don't lose those distinctions. They're just completely redeemed. I know it's impossible to think that even an American could be redeemed, but it's going to be happening. It's going to happen. We're all going to be redeemed, praising God around his throne. And it's going to be glorious. Because the nations are in his inheritance. But also, there's something else here that I I want you to think about. Because there's this great picture that we see in the Old Testament. Especially the Old Testament prophets would often talk about the kingdom. They would be looking forward to the kingdom. What would it be like when the Messiah would actually come? Now, remember, they only saw one coming of the Messiah. At least most of them did. And we know, of course, there's two comings. The Messiah came the first time as a servant. He comes the second time uh, to, as the conquering king. When Jesus comes back is when his kingdom comes in its fullness. So we're in the already but not yet. But there's this reality that they were looking forward to the kingdom and they would therefore express their expectation of what the kingdom is going to be like in these glorious pictures. Listen to this from Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. You may have heard this. We used to sing this as a song in one of my old churches. And here's what it says. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you. It's like to calm you down with his love. Notice, he will rejoice over you with singing. How excited is God about having us with him for eternity? He sings over us. You know, 
Have I ever sung to you, babe? I can't remember if I ever sung to you. It wouldn't be very pleasant if I did. I think I have a couple times, yeah. I sing stupid, goofy songs all the time, but I'm singing of something romantic. But, you know, really, singing is a big deal, isn't it? We sing because of how we feel. We sing because of what we think is important. But singing to somebody is even a bigger deal. Serenading is something that, you know, most people don't have the gumption that to do. Even if you have a great voice, to actually, to do that with sincerity, to sing to somebody you love is a, that's a big deal. You're putting yourself out there. God's sing is going to sing over us. <laughs> I mean, we, we picture heaven and we're going to be there rejoicing, praising God, praising God. And all of a sudden there's going to be this unimaginably beautiful voice that comes out and begins to sing over us. And I love you too. It'll probably be some, some form of that language. Amazing. I loved you first. I have no idea what he's going to sing, but he's going to rejoice over us with singing. And just the, just the idea that we serve a God, that we've been saved by a God who would rejoice over his people, the people he saves, that we would have his smile for eternity. And we need that revelation. <laughs> We need God to open our eyes to that truth. We need to not just go, okay, I get the concept, but we need to believe the reality. You know, the older I get, the more I, I realize how important hope is. That expectation of good. It is so hard to live life without hope. You know what our hope is? Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is that we are going to experience this. Or we expect to experience God singing over us. Not because we get it right all the time, but because he's done it right and he's begun a work that he promises to finish. Think about this, guys. Listen, this is what we have to hold on to, especially when God is chasing us. When God is dealing with us in our sin. Because we're looking forward to this amazing experience that we're not having yet. God is chasing us and he's changing us and he's transforming us to prepare us for that. To be with him forever. We need to pray for one another. Asking God, God do that work of revelation. Open our eyes that we would see who you are, what you've done, and what our future holds because of you. That we might endure any difficult work that needs to be done in our lives right now. Now Paul goes on, and, and the, the last chunk, the biggest chunk, is the most complex. We're not going to spend that much time on this because he's going to unpack this later on in different sections of Ephesians. But we see that he's not just thanking God for the work that God's already done. He's also asking God for that work of revelation. But also, he's trusting God for his supernatural work. This power, this radical supernatural thing that has to take place. Notice what he says when he prays for them. Verse 19 He's praying, and what is exceeding, and, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? He wants them to see this. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, now what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, he's praying that these guys would understand the very power that's working in them is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Now, now, please understand what happened when Jesus rose from the dead, okay? We've seen other people resurrected, but really they were resuscitated. 
Elijah in the Old Testament resuscitated people. Jesus resuscitated several people. They were dead. They were brought back to life. But they weren't resurrected. Because the resurrection is when we're not just resuscitated like, oh, we get to stay alive. But then what is dead about us is made completely alive. It is a reversal of death. Not just a postponement of death. It's death dying. That's resurrection. And so listen, in a very real sense, if you've been born again, if you've put your faith in Jesus, and you've asked him to save you, the Bible calls that being born again, Jesus called that being born again. If you've been born again, if you have this new life in Christ, you've been resurrected, so to speak, spiritually. You've been raised to newness of life. You can now walk as a transformed person who's being transformed. And you look forward one day to when this body is resurrected. Radically, totally, eternally changed. Listen. If you would have saw Jesus as the resurrected Jesus as the disciples did, you would have done the same thing they did. You would have not necessarily recognized him initially, and you would have been blown away. How can this be? How can we just see someone who was crucified? We saw him dead. We saw him buried. How is it we can now see him, touch him, eat with him? He is the same Jesus, and yet somehow he's new. How can that be? It's called resurrection. It's called the supernatural, mighty working of God. And that same power is what is changing us day by day by day. Paul is praying that we would trust that. One of the biggest mistakes we make as Christians is we begin to, to drift in this thing where we're looking to ourselves. We're trusting ourselves to finish what Christ started. Paul got in the Galatians case about this. Paul said, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, will you be made perfect in the flesh or by your own strength? Listen, God started the work in you. Guess who has to finish it? God does. But if he can raise Jesus from the dead and not just keep him from dying, but give him new life so he never dies again, can he not do that in us? Can he not change us? Is he not raising the dead in us? God wants you to see that. Paul's praying we'd see that. He goes on to say, verse 20, listen. He goes on to pray for them. Uh, or sorry, the second part of verse 19. He says, and seated him, and is seated Christ at the right hand in heavenly places. So he's exalted to the throne of God. Far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion. Above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's just a really long way of saying there is no greater power than Jesus. These, these phrases, principalities, powers, Paul will use them in, in Ephesians 6 to refer to demonic beings or fallen angels. But it covers uh, angels that haven't fallen. It also covers kings and governments and presidents and prime ministers as well. In other words, there is no greater authority than Christ. And Paul's praying that we'd understand that. That, that he's doing a supernatural work that overthrows all other authorities. You know what that means? When any authority stands against us, we don't have to be afraid. We, we can feel fear. There's no condemnation in feeling fear. But we can turn our faith to God and say, you know, Jesus, would you do something? Because you're the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have all authority. That means when the enemy is, is condemning us and confusing us and tempting us, 
that we can say, Lord, I'm looking to you. You have all authority. I don't have to listen to him. That means when men try to deceive us, we can say, no, I'm going back to Jesus. I'm trusting him. He's doing the supernatural work. And then finally in verse 22, he says, and he put, God put all things under his, that's Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We'll really unpack these in Ephesians 4. But let me just say this for now. This, we're, this is about us trusting God doing the supernatural work because Jesus has all authority. Listen, here's how he manifests his authority. This is kind of a confusing phrase. Commentators believe all, all kinds of different things about this, but here's what I believe this is talking about. When he says, he talks about that he's the head over the body, the head over the church, right? That the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. What he's talking about is not that we fill up Christ so much, but that Christ fills us to show everyone else something of God's authority, something of Christ's authority. In other words, listen, this work, this, this supernatural powerful, transforming work that Christ brings to us, that Paul wants us to be aware of, that is manifested through the obedience of his people. Do you know why it's so important for us to, to learn to walk in obedience? To actually obey? Jesus not just say, Lord, Lord, but do what we want. Because we are in obedience. If we're obeying God, if we're, if we're trusting God through obedience, you know what we're doing? We're demonstrating to the world that he's a good authority. He's worthy to be trusted. Why do you, people might say, well, why do you make such a big deal about, oh, I gotta be at church on Sunday, it's gotta be the priority. What's the big deal? I mean, you say God's forgiven and loving, certainly he doesn't care. Don't make, why are you so committed to being at church? Because I wanna be obedient. And he says, don't forsake the assembly together of your people. Why do you sacrifice and give time and money to, to all this mission stuff? Why are you doing that? Well, because he says that I ought to be generous because he's been generous. And I ought to give to the poor and to the mission of the gospel because that's what he's done. And, and he's good and I want to do what he says. You see, we obey not to get something to God uh, from God. We obey to demonstrating something about God. He's worthy to be trusted. Paul is praying that we'd understand that. Paul's praying the Ephesians understand that. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand this. This is prayer. Prayer is us thanking God for the work he's already doing. It's asking God for his work of revelation. God, open our eyes to see all that you are and all that you've done. And prayer is us trusting God for his supernatural work, a work we can't do for ourselves. Let's do that right now.